Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Troyes from Singapore, enjoying what we call the new lockdown, which is a lot like the old lockdown uh, in a COVID-19 world. And today we are honored to have Randy Bullard with us from Charles River. Randy, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. appreciate the invitation. So, Randy, you and I, we were talking ahead of this. Uh, you've always been very patient with me on LinkedIn. And, you know, we, we haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet. And, and regrettably, in a COVID world, it seems that that'll be pushed off for a few months. But one of the things I've really enjoyed has been the honesty of your comments and, and, and uh, opinion regarding some of the things out there in, in, in the world of fintech and, and now as the incumbent firms uh, start to realize what's there. So let me let me ask you a question, and we can use this as a as a softball to more. For our Asian listeners, what 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 do you see happening now in the U.S. as it relates to fintech, as it relates to wealth, as it relates to digital advisory? Or, or is that age of innovation going to keep continuing, or or or, or do you envision it uh, slowing down and transitioning to something else? Um, you know, listen, I mean, there's always the next new widget. And so there's going to be no shortage of, uh, and, there, and there's, you know, continues to be uh, a fair amount of capital. But I, I, I do think um, uh, we're, we're to a degree at an end of an age. You know, I, I think uh, the amount of capital and the amount of innovation uh, and, and kind of, you know, the amount of stupid ideas that got funded, um, <laughs> I, I, I think are uh, waning. Um and, you know, right now, given what's happened with COVID, I think uh, it, it's really unclear uh, when liquidity will open up for a lot of those investments. Um, and, you know, a lot of those investments, they, 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 need, they need, you know, kind of ongoing infusions of capital until they can get sold or go public. And so it, it's, um, this is when markets, uh, particularly VC and private equity markets, start to get um, interesting. And uh, so, so uh, listen, I... I there's always interesting firms. I, there are a lot of firms that, you know, uh, are in the space that I like. Um, but I, I, I think we're, uh, you know, we're, we're definitely at a change in the market. And I think we're likely to see a lot less true brand new from scratch, give me an A round bucket of money startups, 
um, uh, and, and, you know, more uh, acquisitions, more bigger firms getting bigger, more consolidation. Um, I think, you know, we're going to enter a, a cycle of risk aversion with the large firms. Um, and, and when that's the mindset, you know, uh, so much of the fintech, wealth tech startup market depends on the largesse of the large institutions trying to effectively, you know, kind of get early bets on firms or capabilities they may want to bring house. And, and um, I think there's going to be less of that. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's probably going to be a little bit tougher and a little thinner in the, uh, in the fintech space going forward. And for our listeners, you, you, you and I share the same uh, hairline, which is just a disingenuous way of you and I trying to uh, uh, hopefully at least feel younger. But you, you've had some good scar tissue in, in the fintech space. I mean, you, you had the opportunity to work with one of the larger, better known firms uh, and, and you know, their partnership with a, with a huge incumbent as an investor. You're, you're now at Charles River, which is, again, not a small firm as, as a technology firm uh, owned by State Street, which is just an absolute behemoth uh, in the industry. How was how, how that transition for you? Because I, I think, again, we have a lot of listeners here in Southeast Asia in particular who I think would align emotionally and culturally with your, your former firm. But at the same time, you have the perspective now, especially with State Street, to, to see what it's like from an incumbent and, and as an incumbent tries to assess this. So what about that transition? Would you highlight to our listeners? And, and maybe you could talk a little bit about why you made that change. That That is a really good uh, observation. And I've not been asked that question. It's kind of one that I, I almost ask myself because my entire career before getting to uh, Charles River and State Street was in, in leadership positions with small firms, startups, and, you know, building, building small firms and, you know, knowing every employee and, and also having the ability to get things done, you know, knowing, you know, direct line to everybody that uh, is required to collaborate to, to move the ball, whatever that might be. Uh, and so for me to come into a firm like, you know, Charles River over a thousand employees and, and State Street over 40,000 employees, um, you know, you have a lot of conversations where you never spoke with a person and you may never speak with them again. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's different. It's a very different beast. And I, I kind of wondered myself how it would, uh, how it would work out. It's worked out very well though. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable being a cog in a machine, uh, or at least I, I am so far. Um, it's, it's a good machine. Uh, I kind of feel like a kid in a candy store, you know, uh, every firm that I've ever been with, you know, uh, you have to do a lot yourself. Your team is thin. You got to be scrappy and, and, and we can still be scrappy, but the access to resources, um, in a firm like Charles river and state street is pretty cool. You know, there's just yeah. a lot of things, uh, that, uh, a lot of options on the table that would have never been options on the table, um, before a lot of access to capital and resources that I've just not had. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm having a good time. It's nine months in after uh, you know twenty plus years in in kind of the startupy world. So you know, ask me again in a year, and I'll see if I've you know changed my tune. <laughs> That's fair. And and along that, you 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 you're very candid about some of the entrepreneurial angst that's there. So just just to pick on one of it, you know, every CEO that's an entrepreneur will always tell you how frustrating they feel the capital raising process is. And, and to your point, it's always a, a, a race for resources. And, and I think your, your analogy of being like a kid in a candy store is, is, is very apt in, in this situation because you now 
aren't scrambling for those resources. So let, let, let's flip it a little bit because I, I think, again, you and I have enough scar tissue. I've, I've been sarcastic at, at it for a long time saying that I have yet to see anything in fintech that's truly disruptive. You know, And again, you know, if you talk about peer-to-peer lending, even distributed ledgers, that this is stuff that's been there forever. I mean, there's some stuff occurring in crypto and quantum that, that, that is novel. But if we really look at fintech, there, there really isn't much. And given now that you're at 50,000 feet, you effectively have infinite resources. Are we really seeing a paradigm now where, where and just to, to use State Street as a straw man, where entities like State Street are now saying, hey, at the end of the day, we're probably not that good at the innovation bit. Let the entrepreneur do that because culturally we'll probably kill it as, as a corporate bureaucracy. And it has the inflection point moved. In other words, are, because people, smart people like you are now part of these incumbents, you understand the mindset of the entrepreneur. I mean, because it puts you in a position now, you don't have to wait for the series C, D, or E rounds. You, you could probably recognize value now early stage to an A round and say, hey, guy, guess what? You, know, you, you need to become part of the mothership. And, is, and is, that, is that mindset now becoming more more pervasive in the market on the part of incumbents? And, and if so, what does that mean for these entrepreneurs relative to their long-term aspirations? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, having access to capital and, and, and resources is uh, great. I think, you know, major firms that uh, wealth management frame on, I, I'm more, you know, just to kind of caveat, I'm, I'm more of a wealth tech guy. I'm pretty narrow. So, you know, retail banking and, and a lot of the other aspects of the uh, fintech market, you know, I know what I read in the industry press and that's, that's about it. I'm a, I'm a pretty narrow wealth industry, wealth technology guy. Um, and so, you know, within, within that world, I'll say that the, you know, the major wealth management firms, um, they are really wanting to buy uh, more of their product and service and technology from fewer vendors uh, that are more deeply integrated and have broader offerings. The idea of uh, you know building complex and difficult to maintain best of breed systems that plug lots of small niche entrepreneurial you know firms together. Um, is really hard. And the firms that have built platforms using that kind of partnership strategy um, have struggled. And so, you know, as, as firms look uh, to, to, you know, kind of learn from that experience, you know, and, and, and kind of make better partnership decisions and vendor decisions around uh, financial technology, you know, it does, you know, make guys like me think, you know, being part of a larger entity that has, just a broad set of existing capabilities and access to capital um, is just a much more attractive uh, place to be. Um, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm in my fifties now, um, fighting for the next uh, dollar, even though it, you know, it's easier as you get older because you have a reputation and you've, you've got, uh, you know, a history of, of uh, you know, delivering return. Um, it's still, you know, the less fun part of the work. And um uh, and so, you know, being at a firm like State Street, I think, is, is, you know, allows me to have degrees of freedom that, uh, you know, I've never had. And I do think, you know, I've got a lot of friends in the industry that are entrepreneurs. They've been in startup world their whole life. And the day I landed here, you know, they called me and, and uh, I'll say a lot of envy. Like, wow, how'd you, how'd you mm-hmm. make that work? Um, which you might not think of, you know, you might think, no, you know, startup land is Nirvana, but, uh, having been there for 20 years, you know, it's kind of nice to be at a place that's got, 
uh, access to capital and resources and longevity and a large established customer base that you can effectively cross sell new product and service and capability into rather than out there, you know, hunting for the first one. And, you know, to your point, I, I hate using this, this uh, reference, but there was a great interview that I saw with Roger Ailes, uh, regrettably before his reputation was so disparaged, but the, he, he brought up the fact they were asking him, how did it feel to work for Rupert Murdoch? And, and he, you know, talked very loudly about being an intrapreneur and, and the, the amount of autonomy that Murdoch gave him, uh, ironically, with Fox News. And, and he, because he had access to those resources, he was able to, to 10x achieve what he wouldn't have achieved had he, had he tried to do it on his own. So, so in a way, it seems like that's almost the case now, because, you know, to your point, I would push back, you know, as a friend to say it's not so much a cog in the machine because you're 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 now, in a way, able to accelerate and escalate some of the themes that you were looking at previously. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and uh, you know, I, I've only been here nine months, but I, it is interesting for me to observe now how State Street, in retrospect. Uh, purchased uh, Charles River. It was a big purchase. They paid you know almost two and a half billion dollars for the firm. Um, and yet, you know, they've kept it separate and distinct. Yes, there are some integrated products that have been developed, um, but they're they're really, you know, they they don't want to, you know, they don't want to strangle the goose. I mean, they know uh, that you know Charles River got to the size and reputation uh, it has based on uh, its software, its people, its its uh, entrepreneurial drive, um, and and it wouldn't be hard for a bank like State Street to kill that by integrating it tightly and, and putting it under the same uh, management infrastructure, and, uh, and so they haven't done that. Um, you know, time will tell, but I think, you know, there are enough case studies in the market now uh, where, where, where large firms know that if they, if they buy a firm and they really want to get the value out of the, the firm, the main thing they need to do is, is have a bit of a hands-off and allow the, the people in the innovation that, that made that firm what it is, um, uh, you know, do even better by getting leverage and access to the collective resources, not strangled by being buried and embedded in the mothership. And, so, uh, so far so good. It's been, uh, you know, it's very, it's pretty hands off. And yet, you know, I'm part of the executive team also within State Street Bank and State Street Bank has got aspirations for growing uh, the wealth business beyond, uh, you know, the software business that, that Charles River has today. And so, you know, being part of that broader dialogue and that broader set of resources and strategies is uh, very eye opening and, and, um, and fun. Good deal. Okay. Let's shift gears because today, totally coincidentally, it looks like the DOJ approved the the, the Schwab TD merger, uh, which I thought was interesting in terms of timing. And what 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 are your thoughts on that? And and what are the pros and cons around the, the two of them merging? And I think what is the number now that they would have forty percent of the market? Is that correct? Uh, at least. My gut tells me more, but I don't have the numbers in front of me, but something probably like that. Yeah. I mean, uh, listen, I, I have worked for well over a decade with both, you know, TD Ameritrade and Schwab, and I've got a lot of friends and I think they're both great firms, great leadership, um, you know, but, but it's a, you know, the, and I primarily think of Schwab and TD Ameritrade differently than probably a lot of your listeners do. They've both got very large retail brokerage and wealth businesses, but I primarily think of them just given where I am in the industry as dominant providers of RIA 
uh, independent advisor, you know, custody and technology uh, services and trading. Um, you know, most independent advisors in the U.S. either work with Schwab or TD or Pershing or Fidelity NFS. Those those four really dominate the market. And so when you take two of the four larger providers and, and put them together, I think there was a lingering question whether the DOJ would approve it. I, I'm not surprised that they did, but but it, it is, you know, it, it definitely uh, reduces choice and competition in the market. Um, but listen, Schwab is a uh, the leading provider because they're great. And, uh, and, and buying TD isn't going to make them any less great. It'll only make them uh, more great. Uh, what's interesting about TD is they have really kind of led the charge in truly being open and friendly to emergent uh, wealth tech uh, providers. And so, uh, you know, if you ever showed up at the TD Ameritrade conference, um, you know, just lots of innovation. They had a, you know, have a, uh, an open technology platform called Veo, uh, which is, you know, really allows uh, emerging technology firms to integrate into the full um, technology stack via APIs at TD. And they've really, you know, TD made a name for themselves with that kind of philosophy. And, um, and there, you know, there's questions in the market whether Schwab, which historically has opened a little more of a closed network, or operate more of a closed network, whether they're going to maintain that. Um, so jury's still out, you know, it, it uh, but it, but, you know, I, I think there are people that are really in the wealth tech space, particularly early stage emerging firms. Um, they're concerned by it. Um, they, they see the loss of TD as the loss of one of the major incubators of wealth tech in the, in the, in the U S market. And, uh, I, I don't want to pass judgment on, on how that might emerge yet, but, um, it's certainly a, you know, a point of concern, but overall, uh, I, I'm a free market person, and I think it's a fair offer and a fair purchase. And I'm glad the DOJ didn't didn't hold it up and, and allowed the markets to do what the markets do. And, and to the degree that you can, it, it, it's it's interesting through the lens that you you, you framed it. On, on the one hand, I agree with you, and, and what I've heard from colleagues in the states, some apprehension and anxiety around. Schwab kind of killing the golden goose uh, in terms of the, how innovative TD was and how open they were. And, and to your point, Veo was that was the, the the mission was to be open and 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 unbiased. But at the same time, Schwab just a few weeks ago did did the transaction with with Motif, which was interesting because just prior to them announcing the transaction, uh, Motif basically said, "We're done. We're we're shutting the doors." And then what was it? Two, three weeks later, Schwab's like, no, we're buying it. We're, we're, we're yeah. going to pick up the technology. We're going to pick up the engineering team. And, th and there were two things that stood out to me on this. One was, so Schwab isn't this slow behemoth. They obviously were able to do something really, really quick. But also, too, I think their speed pointed to the fact that somewhere corporate, there was someone in a room with a product roadmap and said, hey, share fractionalization and thematic portfolios is the direction we want to go in. And, and as the market was processing that, immediately thereafter, you had Goldman say, okay, Folio, we're going to buy you and, and, and pull you in. So again, it seemed that there was this trigger of events around that where some of these innovations have been earmarked. And so what, what thematically, or, and I hate to use the word thematically, strategically, what do you think they're, they're now thinking about in terms of, because of, again, Catalyst for Schwab TD was, you know, initially the market was just processing, holy cow, they just went to commission-free trading. So now they're going to compete directly with Robinhood. But it seems that there's a bigger overarching strategy that they're executing on. It seems that there's been, so, you know, it was free trading, the merger was announced. Uh, 
you know, now they buy motif. I mean, what, what do you, what do you think they're thinking about? Yeah. Well, listen, uh, never bet against Walt Bettinger. I mean, he is, uh, he's in that chair for a reason. Uh, he is a smart guy. Um, and, uh, Yes, you know there is absolutely a roadmap. I I am not surprised at that purchase. I think it's an incredibly interesting purchase and a very smart purchase. You know, motif. Um, I, I I'm I, to me the thematic investing is is uh, uh, gimmicky investing. I I, I yeah. personally don't um, uh, think too much of it. But what motif really had built that I think is interesting is a client led, digitally empowered, enabled. Um, mass customization capability where um, individual investors could dial in their own preferences. Um, uh, it could be ESG, it could be factors, it could be a risk criteria, um, it could be industry preferences, um, uh, and then really kind of do a bottoms up, you know, construction, uh, kind of using a direct indexing approach. And um, that is the real gem that um, that I think Motif had within their portfolio. They had a bunch of indices and, and, and some products. And I just think, frankly, all that was was baggage. You know, Schwab, you know, swooped in and got the gem for pennies on the dollar that it that it took capital wise to actually develop that and all the intellectual property and the engineers that went behind it. Um, so, you know, kudos to them. And, and honestly, as I'm talking to uh, partners and prospective partners in the market, I'm talking about that deal as a harbinger of, uh, 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 of some of the major, you know, trends in the market. I think direct indexing, uh, individual portfolio construction, um, uh, you know, kind of, uh, and now that particularly that you've, you know, when you pair that with fractional shares, that's the real magic that, that Schwab, you know, is already, uh, you know, committed to launching uh, a fractional share trading and, uh, and custody infrastructure uh, this summer. And when you put a uh, motif, when you overlay that capability on the fractional share uh, infrastructure that they've already built and committed to the market, you put those two things together and it's real clear that there's a powerful new capability coming to market and that they're going to be ahead of the market. They're, they're leading. They're not waiting for other firms to innovate. And, you know, what Goldman did uh, is similar. Folio FN, you know, that firm was founded back in, I don't know, 99, I think, back when yeah. I founded my first firm. And, yeah. um, you know, so they've been slogging for a long time uh, and they were terribly innovative back then, but they've, you know, they're long in the tooth. They've been struggling for a long time with relevance. They've been kind of a, a custodian of last resort for really small RIAs um, that frankly couldn't do business with Schwab. And so just as, you know, Schwab, uh, you know, swallows TD, Goldman buys Folio. And what does that mean? Well, you know, depending on how they aim it, you know, Goldman could go directly into the RIA custody plot, you know, market with a native uh, fractional share infrastructure uh, and uh, and broker dealer paired with it. Um, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily their plan for it, but it's a very interesting purchase. Uh, and Goldman is another one of those firms that, man, I would never want to bet against them. They are innovative. They're they're deploying capital smartly. Um, and uh, I think both of those firms. I, I think the direct indexing space. Uh, is really, really interesting, and every firm uh, is going to need to kind of think about it, watch it, and, and consider what their own uh, strategy is. 
Um, and then the other major driver around this is is something that I you know I I, I think historically has been hyped, but is becoming increasingly real, and that's ESG investing. And mm. um, uh, you know ESG investing has largely been done through products, and a product is may have you know ESG factors embedded in it, but you know it is what it is. It's static, and every investor that invests in that product. Uh, is effectively saying I care about you know uh, carbon exactly this much and uh, and world hunger exactly this much and the truth is you know every investor has very different criteria when it comes to ESG what you care about is different than what I care about and the real appropriate implementation of ESG investing is at the individual investor level the portfolio of one and um, and that's where again this motif and direct indexing uh, capability really comes to bear. I think as ESG continues to um, uh, evolve and adoption grows, um, the ability to really tailor individual preferences in a separate account structure using a direct index approach that is going to be kind of the uh, you know the mountaintop you know the the, the ideal way to truly implement. Uh, a uh, an ESG solution, and, and so all of these things kind of feed into each other. And I just think uh, both what Schwab and Goldman are doing uh, with those transactions are, are very innovative and likely to be emulated by others. And and if you can, if you can indulge me, just if we can take it just a notch lower, uh, what what would be an easy layman's definition of direct indexing? What would be the easiest way for folks to get their arms around it? Well, people know largely what uh, indexed products are. So you've got ETFs that have, you know, that are kind of, you know, passive index. So if you have, you know, in the U.S. the S&P 500 and you buy the ETF, uh, you get a, a a portion of all of those underlying 500 fold uh, holdings, and you get it in a unitized product in an ETF or in a mutual fund. Uh, but the other way you could get those 500 holdings is to get those 500 holdings. You could buy all yeah. 500 holdings. The problem historically is if, uh, you know, you have a uh, hundred million dollars, you can do that. If you've got $10 million, you can kind of do it with sampling. Maybe you don't get all 500, maybe you only get 150. But 150 is enough to get a really tight tracking error and effectively mimic the performance and risk return characteristics of the underlying uh, benchmark. Uh, but, but below some threshold, a few million dollars, it starts to become economically non-viable uh, and you really have to use a unitized product like a, a mutual fund or an ETF. But fractional shares blows that up. Fractional shares, now you can own 0.001% of a security. And so with a, a robust, you know, kind of well-structured, well-managed fractional share broker-dealer infrastructure and custodian, you can own all 500 shares in a $1,000 account. Um, and that's kind of mind-blowing. Um, and, and when you can do that, and when you can own all 500 shares, except I don't want to own the ones that look like this or this, because those don't match my values. And if you could use, for example, a mathematical optimizer that said, okay, we'll pull those out. So of the 500, you don't want to own these 30. Let's, instead of just pulling those out and leaving those holes in the portfolio, let's overweight another set of exposures that actually takes that position, you know, your overall portfolio and makes it perform virtually identical to the original 500 uh, stock portfolio. And so it's a lot of math 
it's a lot of data. It really didn't work as recently as five years ago, but now it does. You put together optimization technology, fractional shares, all of the data that's available now. Um, and all of a sudden, you can really do something truly new and innovative that was just, you know, unavailable to anybody with less than, you know, 10, 12 million dollars uh, just a few years ago. You know, and, and what's amazing about that, uh, I'll, I'll share with you a, an interesting conversation we had last year where uh, you and I were talking offline about this Digibank license process that's occurring here in Singapore and a wealth management proposition is a big, big driver to that. And, and again, as you and I were sharing uh, ahead of the broadcast that Asia is probably eight, 10, 15 years behind the US in certain things like this. But the interesting thing, I, I was talking to one executive of an enormous platform, over a billion users of the platform. And the question they asked was they said, so in theory, you know, and again, in theory, he said, in theory, we could for our users, they could receive this risk for a dollar. They they could go to a dollar in theory. And I and I said, yes. I said, in theory. You know, and again, you know, I like using the, the analogy, give an infinite number of monkeys, an infinite number of typewriters, somebody <laughs> think bang on Shakespeare. So in theory, I was like, yes, I'm nodding my head. And then he asked me a really, really interesting question. He said, what if it was a dollar and what if it was a hedge fund? Is that really risk? And it was funny because I was with the regulator and then he turned to them and he goes, are you really going to get upset if this guy loses a dollar? even though it was like a totally ramped up alternative investment allocation, you know, based on its posture. So, so around this, you know, to your point, it, it really, you know, to direct indexing and to your point, if you can strip out these risk exposures, it, it, it really also calls into the question, you know, in terms of the end user, who are they, how sophisticated they are. And, and, and at the end of the day, based on the dollar amounts that they could be investing, uh, where's the fiduciary role? In, in all of this. I mean, isn't that conceivable? I mean, that's got to come up in part of these discussions. It does. But, you know, I, at least in the U.S. market, you know, it, it's it's pretty clear, you know, if you're a fiduciary or not. And if you're a fiduciary, then there's an investment advisory you know, role where they're going to make sure that, um, you know, you're making informed decisions and that, you know, the tools and technology, uh, you know, have guardrails that keep you in bounds, whatever those bounds, you know, might be. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I don't think anything about direct indexing creates a uh, risk that isn't already fully manifested in the breadth of, you know, products, uh, that are on the shelf today. I mean, they're just in the last few days, there've been yet more, you know, uh, stories about, uh, all these leveraged and inverse ETFs and, uh, the losses that, uh, a lot of, uh, us investors have taken by, you know, buying products that they frankly just should never have bought, horrible decision ideas, and they shouldn't have even had access to them. Um, uh, but, you know, they did. And, and, uh, and so I, I think that, you know, that issue of uh, who's playing gatekeeper, who's operating in a fiduciary capacity um, is a broader one. Uh, it's very real. Um, but I don't, I, I don't have any reason to think that the introduction, uh, introduction of things like direct indexing creates, you know, new risk that isn't already, you know, kind of fully in the market today with existing products. Let me ask you a question for the sake of, uh, as a friend poking the bear. I mean, do you really think the end user should have control over their account given investor behavior? I mean, at the end of the day, I could cynically say to you, if you and I were sharing a bourbon on the back porch. 
I could cynically say to you that behaviorally, they're not going to be able to manage it themselves. At the end of the day, this is just an NPV calculation based on certain retirement uh, functions. I mean, how much of this should the end user just turn over to the machine? Because at the end of the day, it, it is an NPV. And to, and to your earlier point on the direct indexing, it's just math. Uh, do we want the investors making these decisions, knowing you know, where, where their biases and behavior can go? Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, this is where my uh, American and specifically my Texan will come out. And and in doing so, I will largely decline to even answer the question. Uh, uh, because, because individual liberty and individual choice, no matter how poorly it may be deployed, uh, is paramount to all as far as I'm concerned. So, um, yeah, I mean, listen, uh, most retail consumers, you know, have no business uh, managing their own portfolios. Uh, the good news is there are lots of high value, low cost providers in the market. Um, and, and we've got an increasingly, uh, uh, I don't want to say rigid, but an increasingly, you know, good and appropriate uh, regulatory environment that, uh, you know, is pruning the tree of all the time of bad actors and bad solutions, making it easier to do the right thing, cheaper to do the right thing. Um, at the end of the day, you know, I, I think uh, it's important for individual investors. I, it's just a kind of a core belief. Again, I'll go back, you know, lean back on my Texan. Um, I, you know, I, I think individuals are responsible for themselves and I don't like nanny state mentality that says we'll take care of you because that doesn't often work out too well. So, um, that does though leave people in the lurch, right? It allows people to buy, you know, triple inverse ETFs and blow up their portfolios. <laughs> I'm sorry they did that, uh, but I'm certainly glad you had the right to do it. So how about that? <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, and 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 along that, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I love the the Texas bias, which actually dovetails perfectly with the bourbon that I'd love to drink with you. The <laughs> if, if 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 we took that a step further, what one of the transactions out here that that ironically is not getting picked up by the Western press to the degree that it should, which is, on the one hand, you know, God forbid you and I went to Washington and said the word China, it doesn't matter what your political affiliation, everybody's angry at China in the U.S. And China has dropped the gates. <clears throat> they've made investment difficult. They've made business. It just made everything difficult in, in terms of how they are. But the transaction that folks have been relatively quiet about has been the extraordinary amount of money going to Joe in India with Ambani, where yep. you've had Facebook, you've got KKR, you've got Vista, you've got Microsoft. And I was talking with, I have to keep this anonymous. I was talking with a GP of a very, very large marquee VC firm. And for us, it was a great phone call because he contacted me and said, hey, we're, we're done with India. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, you're a behemoth. What do you mean you're done with India? And he said, no. He goes, Ambani uh, is the personification of the public and private sector. He goes, he's Xi Jinping without the gates. He's accepting the money. He's bringing in the IP. He's allowing us to, to, to have access, us being the Americans. He's allowing us to have access to the data. And he was like, the age of innovation is over. He goes, you can't compete with something like him. He's, a, you know, he's in every possible sector of the economy. And what resonated with me about that was, you know, to your point on Americans having rights, the irony of COVID has been folks starting to recognize that maybe they don't want to have some of those rights, that maybe for their own security, safety, and stability, 
that they do need to think about giving that up. So let me ask you a question. It's somewhat political and I apologize, but here you've got Alibaba, which is Amazon, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, combined. You've got Tencent with WeChat. And one of the funniest conversations I have with the American fintechs when they come out here is they'll generally make the mistake in a meeting with these super apps where they'll say, well, our client acquisition costs in the US are $5 a user. And you'll see the guys here just laugh hysterically and they'll say, it's zero here. We have no acquisition costs. We have hundreds of million. We're not even thinking about that. That's not even part of our culture. I mean, is the US even remotely positioned to, because here, you can argue, yes, is it authoritarian in some cases? Is it a benevolent dictatorship in some of these countries? Yes. But the reality is they don't dance around these rights issues, which also to a certain extent doesn't introduce these systemic risks. But is the U.S. being naive about this? I mean, because we've, we've got all the firepower. We have the data. We have the technology. We can address these issues. I mean, you you and I, I've, I've seen it in some of our, our social posts where, you know, why isn't Facebook a full-on financial services firm? You know, why isn't Google, you know, whereas they're playing it safe in payments, but they're not doing some of the other obvious things that they could do. So the question is, are we shooting ourselves in the foot in America by not just recognizing we've got everything we need to do this? And maybe we do need to have a conversation around, you know, to your point around these rights, or do we just let it say, no, it's a free market. You guys just do what you want to do. Um, you know, it's an interesting question. I, I don't entirely feel qualified to answer it, but I, I you know, I, I think in the U.S., um, uh, we've got, you know, uh, a history in our financial markets and our regulatory uh, uh, sectors that's different and um, a little bit longer than some of the other markets. And, uh, and so we've got, um, you know, walls and, and constraints. Uh, and the other is our market has got is so big and has so many uh, dollars in it that, you know, firms tend to be myopic and, and they tend to kind of really over index on the US market. Now, obviously, just the sheer numbers of consumers and now there's the sheer numbers of, of, of dollars, um, you know, in, in uh, all the Asian uh, markets, but particularly, you know, China uh, and India, um, you know, that, that's got the world's attention. It's got uh, the fintech and wealth tech markets attention. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, I, 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 sh- I struggle, you know, with uh, uh, kind of putting aside my ideals. I also frankly struggle with particularly in China, uh, that uh, you know the major uh, U.S. firms that could be innovative and and uh, competitive in in that market aren't allowed to be um, mm-hmm. that, that we won't play you know and and so it's it's uh, you know I'm 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 pretty conflicted um, uh, in in honestly in how I think about that. Yeah, and it's a, and it's a tough question. I, I remember uh, Sapnandu, who, who heads up fintech for the MAS, he had a great quote at one conference where, uh, and he used it as a punchline where he would say, you know, if all of you knew via Google, what I was really, really looking at day to day, none of you would talk to me. And he said, so, you know, or, or God forbid, make a loan to me. And which I thought was interesting, but the, yeah. it, it, it seems that these, these are some of the harder questions now that are, that are coming up where I think it's going to be, you know, and it, it gets back to, uh, we, we had a podcast, as I shared with you uh, earlier uh, last week with Mark Cassidy uh, of Vestigo Ventures, who was previously with uh, LPL. And this role of the fiduciary really gets interesting in, in terms of who at the end of the day is going to be responsible for that end investor in terms of getting them from point A to point B. And, yep. and, uh, and I think that's going to be a, a huge question for us as, as we move forward. 
Well, Randy, we we've covered everything, and and uh, and to your credit, you lightly scooted out, and I, I respect you for that. We could have had a political conversation, and, and we stayed away from that, and 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 uh, uh, and you allowed me to poke you in the ribs a few times. Um, but again, I'm going to hold you to that bourbon if that's okay. Absolutely, I'd love to do it. I tell you what, though, I I'm, I may have a tequila. I'll, I'll watch you drink your bourbon. Okay, <laughs> right, we'll do, and that'll put the hair on my chest for sure with the with the tequila. Well, Randy, again, thank you so much for your time today. This has been absolutely fantastic. And again, I would love to have you on, uh, if you don't mind, I think kind of in a post-COVID world, uh, it'll be really interesting. And I think more in particular, as these licenses are handed out here in Southeast Asia, I would love your perspective as, as some of the American firms are now jumping the pond, coming here and realizing that, that this is a, an initiative they need to be part of. So if you're open to it, I'd, I'd love to uh, welcome your thoughts in, in the next couple of months, if that was okay. Absolutely. Yeah, it'd be fun to do it. I've had a lot of fun, Frank. Thanks for inviting me. Perfect. Well, for our listeners, thank you again for tuning into this week's edition of Unhedged. Again, please be safe with your families in terms of safe distancing. And again, we wish you all the best of luck, best of health this week. And Randy, as well, to you and your family, uh, please be safe. And thank you again for your time this week. You bet. Thanks. Take care, everyone. Thanks.